I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. at the window check all right we are ready to launch happy monday everyone now uh right out of the shoot i want to bring your attention to a major new study that was published on pubmed very recently authored by m nathaniel mead stephanie senef fuss wolfinger or sorry russ wolfinger jessica rose steve kirsch and of course dr peter mccullough Titled COVID-19 mRNA Vaccines Lessons Learned from the Registrational Trials and Global Vaccination Campaign. Again, this is published in PubMed. PubMed. And I I am grateful to lawyer Eva Chipiak, who's been on the program several times. She obviously read the entire report and highlighted some of the key findings on X. So again, this study is to be found at PubMed. And the list of authors includes our good friend, Dr. Peter McCullough. Given the extensive, well-documented, serious adverse events and unacceptably high harm-to-reward ratio, we urge governments to endorse a global moratorium on the modified mRNA products until all relevant questions pertaining to causality, residual DNA, and aberrant protein production are answered. Furthermore, these products never underwent adequate safety and toxicological testing in accordance with previously established scientific standards. Among the other uh, major topics addressed in this narrative review are the published analyses of serious harms to humans, quality control issues, and process-related impurities, mechanisms underlying adverse events, the immunologic basis for vaccine inefficacy, and concerning mortality trends based on the registrational trial data. Wow. Well, that certainly got my attention. So I read the study myself. And let me share a couple of other key findings. And this section I'm about to read verifies everything that Edward Dowd, 
has been finding um, in his research and what he has shared several times in this program and published in his book. Back to the PubMed study. The adverse impacts on younger segments of the population were also reflected by the extraordinary reports from U.S. life insurance companies from the latter half of 2021. According to the Group Life Survey data, during third and fourth quarters of 2021, the general U.S. population experienced a 32% increase in mortality compared to 40% in the group life count. 8% difference. Group life policyholders are well-employed, young, and generally healthy adults previously dying at about one-third the rate of the U.S. population, based on a 2016 Society of Actuaries analysis. Thus, the mortality observed among the group life cohort, cohort in 2021 represents an inversion of previous trends. The excess deaths in the group life data were determined by comparing average death rates in the group life data from 2017 to 2019. That's the baseline adjusted for seasonality and combined with the CDC data between the second quarter and third quarter, the beginning of the second U.S. vaccination rollout. The Society of Actuaries analysis showed here we go. A 36% increase in excess mortality for ages 25 to 34, a 50% increase for the 35 to 44 age group, and a 52% increase in excess mortality for the 45 to 54 age group. These numbers represent colossal and unprecedented increase in excess mortality for the 25 to 54 age range with an average increase of 46% though averaging the percentages tends to mask the severity of the impact on specific age cohorts. Okay, so let me repeat here. A 36% increase in excess mortality for ages 25 to 4, uh, sorry, 25 to 34, 36%. A 50% increase for the 35 to 44 age group. 50% increase in excess mortality. For 35 to 44 year olds. These are working, working age people. Should be among the the healthiest. Let me continue on with the study again in PubMed. As mentioned above, these were younger, healthier adults. And thus, it is illogical to suggest that COVID-19 had any substantial influence on mortality, especially given the extremely low IFR associated with the younger age brackets. That's the infection rate. Indeed, according to the most recent group life report, the excess mortality in each of the age groups applied only to non-COVID-19 deaths. There was no excess mortality directly attributed to COVID-19. Importantly, the surge in excess mortality among the 25 to 54 age group was also temporarily associated with the introduction of U.S. vaccine mandates among military and hospital personnel from the summer into the fall of 2021. From March 2021 to Feb 2022, there were approximately 61,000 excess deaths among Americans under age 40, equivalent to all U.S. servicemen lives lost during the Vietnam War. That's why Edward Dowd on this program kept talking about this excess mortality in this age group being a Vietnam era event. 
Back to the study. This tragedy was never reported by any of the major U.S. news media or Canadian, for that matter. Let me continue on here because uh, this study is pretty much verifying everything that has been stated repeatedly on this program by Dr. Peter McCullough and Edward Dowd. And, of course, most recently on Friday with Dr. Paul Alexander, who was a pandemic advisor to President Donald Trump. And you'll recall Dr. Alexander told us on this show on Friday about his battles with Anthony Fauci and uh, Dr. Deborah uh, Burks. Dr. Alexander said Burks and Fauci considered him to be the devil. And he said, I considered them to be the same. So let me just say, if Dr. Anthony Fauci calls you the devil, you must be an angel. Anyway, uh, back to the study. The World Council for Health has demanded an immediate moratorium on these novel products due in part to the issue of extensive DNA contamination. On a precautionary basis, we agree with recommendations for the immediate removal of the COVID-19 vaccines from the childhood immunization schedule, along with the suspension of boosters and a full investigation of the vaccine industries, industries and regulatory agencies' misconduct regarding safety assessments and data from the founding trials. It is unethical and unconscionable to administer an experimental vaccine to a child who has a near zero risk of dying from COVID-19, but a well-established 2.2% risk of permanent heart damage based on the best prospective data available. Additional risks for these otherwise healthy young individuals include seizures, cancers, autoimmune disorders, and numerous other life-stealing conditions post-vaccination. All right, and finally... Uh, This section of the study pertains to the longer term because we don't know what lies ahead. When you have a vaccine rolled out in four months, a vaccine which normally would have taken 10, 12, 14 years if it goes through the proper regulatory uh, system. So after four months, we have zero long-term data, zero. But here's what could lie ahead. Back to the study, PubMed. Another relevant aspect of this unfolding tragedy is the untold story of reduced life expectancy. In many developed countries, the main causes of reduced life expectancy, smoking, obesity, opioid overdose, homicides, suicides, and infant mortality, are the primary causes of premature death on a population scale. Nevertheless, it is also clear that several risks associated with COVID-19 vaccinations may translate into premature death in the long term. Among the poor... Untreated bacterial pneumonia is a major cause of reduced life expectancy and may be further exacerbated by COVID-19 vaccination. Strokes and myocarditis associated with COVID-19 vaccinations may cause premature death years after the initial event. A longitudinal study of stroke patients found that fewer than 28 days after a stroke, the risk for death was 28%. This increased to 41% at one year and 60% at five years. Undiagnosed heart and clotting problems can persist asymptomatically for years. Multiple autopsy studies provide definitive evidence of serious post-injection damage to the heart, including sudden cardiac arrest and sudden death, all associated with COVID-19 mRNA vaccines. In adolescent males, however, myocarditis can have a mild outward clinical appearance yet result in severe cardiac fibrosis scarring, scarring with permanent damage to the failure uh, to the heart muscle permanent damage to the heart muscle such damage can eventually lead to congestive heart failure and death many years later 
The registrational trials were insufficient for detecting these long-range hazards, most of which only became evident after two and a half years of follow-up observation and over a billion mRNA injections. There you go. So, Jacob, let's try and get Dr. McCullough back on the program later this week to talk about this damning study. Another damning study. How many damning studies do we need until everyone, and I mean everyone, who pushed this quote-unquote gene therapy on us, how long until they're dragged by the hair in leg irons in an orange jumpsuit into a courthouse? How long do we have to wait? All right. Busy show, as always. James Pugh from Woke Watch Canada is here this hour for the Anti-Woke Book Club. But first, there's a a federal by-election happening in Durham, don't you know? March the 4th. This is Aaron Flip-Flop O'Toole's former riding. And the People's Party of Canada is running uh, a pretty good candidate, I'd have to say. Max Bernier, leader of the PPC, is here next on that. And he'll also talk about Trudeau. Get this. This is not a joke. Trudeau is giving Ukraine $4 million to fund gender-inclusive demining. You know, landmines? He wants to send women and trans people to dig up landmines. You can't make this stuff up. The Richard Serrett Show, off and running for Monday, February 26th in the year of our Lord, 2024. Facta non verba. We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Federal by-election out in uh, Durham, Oshawa, Pickering, Ajax, Uxbridge. Salt of the earth folks out in uh, in Durham. But um, they are looking for a replacement for outgoing MP, former conservative leader Aaron Flip-Flop O'Toole. And the People's Party is uh, is running, I'd have to say, a pretty impressive candidate. I think she ran against uh, O'Toole back in 2021. Patricia Conlon, she's president of a global consulting group. She's an author on health. In, she, uh, on health. She's an international speaker and a, a leadership trainer. Patricia Conlon, she'll be up against Conservative Party candidate Jamal Giovanni, who is also, I have to say, in fairness, a very impressive uh, young man, a former broadcaster, writer, uh, and the NDP running Chris Borgia. I don't know anything about Chris. And the Liberals are running, um, I'm not sure if it's a former city councillor, Robert Rock. All right, here to talk about the, oh, this is, a, I think this is the last day to vote uh, in uh, the advanced polling up in Durham. So get out and vote today. We are joined by the Honorable Max Bernier, Mad Max leader of the People's Party of Canada. Max, welcome back. How are you? Thank you, Richard. I'm very pleased to be with you. Are you still in Durham region? No, no, no. I'm back in Montreal. All right. So I just uh, I introduced uh, folks to uh, Patricia Conlon. She's uh, running for the People's Party. Anything else you want to add? I mentioned she's an author and um, she runs a consulting group, international speaker. Sounds like a very impressive woman. Yeah, she's an entrepreneur, and she was also running against Aaron O'Toole at the last general election, and she did very well because, as you may know, nationally, the People's Party um, 
had about 5% of the vote and her in her writing, more than uh, 8% of the vote. So she did very well. And now she's uh, known in the writing and uh, she's ready. She's doing door knocking. Uh, and we did a press conference together uh, last uh, Friday. So she'll be, she'll be a good candidate. And I believe the best one right now. So that's why I was also campaigning with her the last uh, two weekends. And it went very well. I don't know what will happen. But uh, we have a good momentum. Yeah, uh, we've talked about this many times. I think I ask you this every time and you always give me the same answer about internal polling. You don't spend your money on internal polling, as I recall, correct? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We don't uh, waste our money for that. And uh, we're a young party. I hope that she'll be able to win. Uh, But if she's not winning, I believe that she will do better than uh, the average that we had at the last election. So a step by step. But, you know, in a by-election, everything can happen because of the participation rate. And I strongly believe that our supporters are very motivated. So if they go out and vote and if uh, our opponents, uh, supporters are not uh, going out, I think it will help us also. So we never know what can happen. And that's why. I was um, with her and tried to be sure that we'll do our best to win that riding. So um, as as you were out knocking on doors with Patricia Conlon, what were you hearing from people in Durham? What are the, let's say, the, the top three concerns of constituents in Durham? Well, the first one is like everywhere in Canada, it's about immigration. You know, it's not because you're living in a region that, you know, you're, you're not concerned about immigration. They are. That's having an impact on their, you know, renting, housing, uh, health care, education. They know that we cannot, it's not sustainable to have mass immigration. So that was, you know, always a discussion. And uh, we were telling people that, you know, we are the only one that is ready to fight mass immigration and to end mass immigration. And the other thing was also that's why we decided to have a policy on that. The DEI, you know, the radical ideology of diversity, equity and inclusion, um, that's having an impact. You know, when when you in our society, you are not giving a promotion to a a university professor or another worker uh, based on merit and competence. It's based on your look and the color of your skin. You know, it's uh, it's not what uh, it's not what we must do. We everybody must be equal before the law, and that's not the case with that. I know so that's I why know we decided released. to go ahead with the policy. Yeah, I, I do want to come back and ask you about that in the next segment. I know you just unveiled. I think it was a five point uh, policy on on DEI. Uh, but just getting back to the door knocking. So these are unsolicited responses you're getting from people that immigration is number one, DEI, number two. Uh, uh, is that right? These are unsolicited. They they tell you this is what we're concerned about. Yeah. And also the price of living, you know, sure. the fact that the purchasing power is going down, the inflation. That's another discussion, uh, actually. Uh, so, yeah, they know that this country is not going in the right direction. You know, that's interesting. Did you ever imagine? I mean, you, you deserve a lot of credit because you were talking about immigration when it, and, and anyone who ever even uttered that word was immediately dismissed as a racist or a bigot. And now here we have it as number one, the number one campaign issue, at least in German, I would think, you know, elsewhere across this country. Did you ever imagine in a couple of short years uh, it would be the number one issue? 
Well, when I spoke about it in 2019, as you know, you're right. Uh, that was part of our platform, and it's still the same idea, the same platform. And I was saying we must end mass immigration. And, you know, some journalists and people were saying that I was racist and that the People's Party of Canada was a racist party. That was, you know, not true, and we we know it, and now more Canadians know it, that, you know, we want to fight to preserve this country and the culture of this country. So, uh, but I knew that it was... A problem at that time. I was right at that time, but I can tell you that I'm even more right these uh, days because of uh, the impact of mass immigration. I knew that it will have an impact, but I did not uh, think that it would be as fast as is coming right now. You know, it's affecting every region of our country. Max, we'll take a time out. When we come back, I do want to talk about your five-point plan to get rid of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We call it the unholy trinity here on the program. We'll uh, get to that discussion and more. The Honorable Max Bernier, Mad Max, leader of the People's Party of Canada, right here on the Richard Serrett Show. Stay with us. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. Federal by-election coming up in uh, Durham, and today is the last day to vote in advance polling. The People's Party candidate there is Patricia Conlon. She ran in 2021 against Aaron O'Toole, who is retiring. Uh, Patricia is president of Global Consulting Group. She's an author on health, an international speaker and leadership trainer, high-profile candidate uh, running for the uh, People's Party. And uh, her the other high-profile candidate would be conservative uh, candidate Jamil Giovanni. Uh, broadcaster, writer, influencer, very impressive young man as well. Uh, so you um, let's talk about the uh, the five point plan, your five point plan to get rid of diversity, equity and inclusion. What can the federal government, if you're the federal government, what can you do to get rid of it? Yeah, it's important to get rid of that radical ideology, because, uh, you know, for our woke leaders right now, it's more important. Diversity is more important than competence. And we are seeing that everywhere in Canada. And the, the, the longer that radical ideology is in place, the more, you know, the more things will happen in our country. And it's not in line with our values, like, you know, what happened in certain, what happens in certain university here in Canada. That's why we presented that uh, plan. And it's simple. We just need and, and we want the federal government to abolish all uh, diversity, equity, and uh, uh, inclusion programs, DEI programs uh, and policies at the federal level, but also in all federal institutions, because as you know, there's uh, federal institutions like banks and uh, Canadian armed forces that are pushing that ideology. And we want to prohibit also the training. Uh, There's a lot of uh, DEI training all across the country, done by the federal government. We must stop that. Uh, But also the most important, we must be sure also to remove the DEI uh, clauses uh, imposed on institution because you have that in some, if you want to have a, a service or a grant, something from the federal government, there's always a clause that you must promote that radical ideology. We will remove that. So that being said, we want the country to respect the Charter of Rights and to be sure that uh, everybody will be uh, equal before the law. And we won't do that uh, inverse discrimination. Uh, You know, the DEI proponents, 
want us to impose an inverse discrimination to a, a certain group. We won't do that. We will, that's a discrimination. We will stop to discriminate, and there's no positive or inverse discrimination that is good. Every discrimination is bad. So uh, just to recap, you're going to end DEI training in all federal departments, agencies, uh, federally regulated industry, like broadcasting, for example. Yes, absolutely. Um, what about uh, extending uh, the reach of the federal government in this regard by um, sort of maybe forbidding DEI um, any company, for example, that is vying for a federal government contract would be prohibited from, is that included in the plan? Yes, it is. It is. That's what I'm saying. You know, we will remove all the other legal causes uh, that the federal government is putting in different contracts. So it Got won't it. happen anymore. Got it. Okay. Um, I want to ask you um, about the um, recent statement of conservative leader Pierre Polyev, basically in support of Alberta Premier Danielle Smith with regard to uh, you know, a ban on um, child-affirming care, so-called. We call it child mutilation uh, for minor children, yeah. hormone blockers, um, requiring parental notification if a child ch- uh, asks teachers to refer to them by a different name than they were assigned at birth, etc. Polyev is, is, says, I'm all in on that. He says, except he's, the second part of his response was, I don't think the federal government you know, can do much because these are provincial and municipal areas of jurisdiction. How do you respond to that? What what can the federal government do to to get rid of child affirming care, uh, enforce parental notification, keep biological males out of women's spaces? Yeah, I believe that Pierre Poliev, you know, was wrong about that when he said that is uh, uh, against the puberty blockers to minors. He said that is against that. Uh, actually, he voted for that. He voted for Bill C-4. Him and all the conservative MPs voted for the Bill C-4. That is a bill that is promoting transition. And when you are promoting the transition, you are promoting giving uh, puberty uh, blockers to uh, minors. So he voted for that. And after that, he said, uh, he, I don't agree with that. I agree with Daniel Smith. I'm okay with what she's doing. But if he's serious, the question is, if he's serious about that, yes, he can do a lot. The first thing that he can do, he can just, you know, table a bill in the House as the leader of the opposition and, and uh, modify the criminal code to prohibit the use of puberty blockers to minors. And, you know, what Daniel Smith did, it's just good in Alberta. But if we want to have the same uh, policy all across the country, we must use the criminal code and prohibit the use of uh, puberty blockers for minors. And that will have an effect all across the country. That's why he's not serious about that. Uh, you know, it's just uh, words and no action. And he's doing that because now it's a little bit popular, but he doesn't have the courage to act. And he is he, able to do that if he wants, but he do, doesn't want to act. OK, we'll take another time out when we come back. I'll, I'll ask you about how or what the federal government can do to ensure 
uh, with the, um, you know, the privacy and safety of women, whether it's uh, change rooms, washrooms, uh, shelters or uh, prisons or sports. We'll get to that. The Honorable Max Bernier, Mad Max, leader of the People's Party of Canada, stays with us back with more of our conversation in three minutes. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. All right, before I get back to my conversation with Mad Max, Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party, let me ask you, when was the last time you evaluated your financial situation or asked yourself, is my advisor and the large financial company they work for the best organization to help me realize my financial goals? Well, our friends at Rocklink work with Canadians just like you across the country to develop a simple but effective plan to make sure you're on the right road to reach your financial goals. The team at Rocklink is committed first and foremost to the long-term growth of your capital, the old-fashioned way. They're not preoccupied with political correctness, gender ideology, ESG, or diversity, equity, and inclusion. Give them a call today at 905-631-5462. 905-631-5462. I did, and now I'm a client. You can also email Rocklink at info at rocklink.com. Info at rocklink.com. Do it today. Don't delay. And find out how they can help you secure your financial future. All right. Big uh, by-election coming up in Durham. March the 4th, today's the last day to vote in the advance poll and the uh, People's Party of Canada running an impressive candidate, Patricia Conlon. She's an author and a um, the president of Global Consulting, international speaker, leadership trainer. She's running against conservative candidate Jamil Giovanni uh, vying for uh, Aaron O'Toole's seat. All right. So, Max, we were talking about what the federal government can do. Pierre Polyev doesn't seem to think there's much they could do to, uh, for example, ensure the safety and privacy of women in safe spaces, uh, abuse shelters, domestic abuse shelters. We have uh, biological males storming into these things and uh, uh, harassing and assaulting women. It's happened here in Ontario on a number of occasions. Uh, we have a 50-year-old man who identifies as a 13-year-old girl using teenage girls' change rooms, showers, competing against them. Um, we have uh, male biological males taking the place of women in, uh, in, in college sports, for example, at a recent volleyball game at Centennial College. Five of the 12 players on the volleyball court were biological males. Meanwhile, these poor young girls were riding the pine, as they say. What can the federal government do in, uh, with, with sports, for example? But the federal government can do a lot because, as you know, the federal government is giving a lot of money to uh, these uh, sport associations across the country. So that must be, you know, if you have a competition, it must be for men only or women only. And if there's a men and women competition, that organization won't receive any money from the federal government. You can do that. It can be a policy. You know, money talks and you cut their funding and they won't be able to promote uh, these crazy policy about, you know, a man in a competition against women. 
And and the federal government can start also in jail and prison. As you know, in jails right now, we have men that are saying that they're not men with women in a jail. So you must change that. You know, a jail must be for women or for men. That's it. That's under the jurisdiction of the federal government. The federal government can act right now and, and give the example. And after that, cutting the funding of every organization that received money from the federal government to promote sport or or uh, or sport association, associations across the country. Uh, just a quick comment on uh, Pierre Trudeau announcing that uh, Pierre Trudeau, <laughs> Justin <laughs> Trudeau, <laughs> I almost pined for those days. Uh, Justin Trudeau announcing that the federal government is giving four million dollars to Ukraine to fund. I wish I was making this up. Gender inclusive demining, demining. So he wants to send women and I guess trans people out into the war zone, <laughs> dig up landmines. But he wants to make that gender inclusive. Your thoughts. I'm just laughing, you know. What can I say about that? It's the, that crazy ideology that is everywhere like a virus. You know, it's more deadly than the COVID-19 virus. It's a virus that is everywhere. And also what what is uh, uh, sad about that is the official opposition and Pierre Poliev is uh, okay with that. Pierre Poliev support the war in Ukraine like Trudeau and his support to give money to Ukraine. We must stop that. I said that the last two years and I, I, I believe that I was right at that time, but right now, you know, it's dangerous and uh, we need to stop that. Now we know that it's a real proxy war, uh, the U.S. against Russia. And uh, yeah, stop the funding and from, you know, when you look at what the Trudeau government is promoting, uh, you know, is not helping uh, us Canadians here in Canada, for sure. Uh, and finally, um, I mean, we're, we're seeing we're seeing Pierre Polyev on certain issues move to the right, not maybe as much to the right as we'd like. But still, uh, you know, he's talking now about immigration, at least in tying the number of immigrants coming into the country uh, with, you know, housing stock. Um, he's talking about, you know, forbidding any member of his staff or any member of the cabinet and so forth or any member of the party belonging to the World Economic Forum. Um, He's talking about now, you know, um, these gender issues. He wasn't talking about them before. Um, Obviously, you know, he's he's doing that because of the People's Party. Let me ask you, uh, are you. Is he? Do you feel like he's cutting your grass, or or do you consider that to be a victory for the PPC that you're moving the Conservative Party further to the right? Yeah, it's it's a victory, and the fact that is. Uh able to speak a little bit about that. It's only speaking, actually. It's no action. Look, in his, uh, he doesn't have any policies or any action plan to do that. He's just speaking about it because it's more popular. So the fact that he's speaking about that, that is showing me that Pierre Poliev is not a leader. He doesn't have any strong conviction and vision for this country. He is a follower and he's following the public opinion. And I believe that, yes, the PPC, we were able and with, uh, you know, freedom fighters Canadians to move the public opinion a little bit uh, on our side. And Poliev is in a position to speak a little bit about that. But there's a big difference between speaking and acting. Now, but on immigration, he won't say that he will stop mass immigration. He's just saying, you know, to appease 
people in his party that are upset with mass immigration and just saying, oh, I will match, uh, you know, housing with immigration. But that's it. There's no number. We must ask him, give us a number. What is? And when we asked that question, he said, we cannot. It's not politicians to, to pick a number of immigrants. It must come from the markets. That's what he's saying. That's what he said. And he's still saying that. So is. It's a little, a little way to appease uh, some Canadians, but uh, I think he he doesn't have the courage to to act, and and we'll see. But you know, if you look at the past, I, I strongly believe that he knows that uh, Canadians wants to hear a little bit more about immigration, and that's why he's speaking about that. But if if you're serious, if Canadians are serious, they. We know that we have the solution and we we know that it will be the thing to do as soon as possible. The Honorable Maxime Bernier, Mad Max, leader of the People's Party of Canada. And again, don't forget the uh, Durham by-election. Today is the last day to vote in advance polling. That takes place on uh, March the 4th. Max, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you, Richard. Have a nice evening. Thank you. You All right. When we come back, the anti-woke book clubs. Stay tuned for that. The Richard Serrett Show continues after this time out on Saga 960. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Because you know I'm all about those books, about those books, start reading. I'm all about those books, about those books, start reading. I'm all about those books, about those books, start reading. I'm all about those books, about those books. It's the Anti-Woke Book Club, ladies and gentlemen, and our good friend James Pugh is with us, independent writer with Woke Watch Canada, wokewatchcanada.com. James, welcome back. How are you? Hey, Richard. I'm doing good. How are you doing? Terrific. Thanks. We're going to look at a book that was written, I guess, 25 years ago called Who Killed Canadian History by J.L. Granitstein. Tell us, or is it Granitstein? Um, tell us a little bit about J.L. Granitstein. Well, first of all, never ask me about pronunciations. <laughs> I think it's Granitstein, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> we'll go with yours. Uh, yeah, he's he's awesome. He is was at one time he was considered one of the most prolific Canadian historians. He was the most published uh, from the very beginning of his career. He was writing monographs, writing essays, publishing academic papers. So he knows what he's talking about. And 25 years ago, he comes up with this book um, where he was very critical of the culture of history teaching and of historiography in Canada and he felt that it had a lot to do with our sort of lack of national identity, national cohesion, the fact that we're just not taught our, our national story. Yeah, it's interesting because, as you say, this was written a quarter century ago. And, and you know, for those people that think uh, that, that uh, the, you know, the woke radical left took over this uh, and, and started, you know, inculcating and, and indoctrinating our children with uh, critical race theory and and all of these things that it's a fairly new phenomenon. This goes back 25 years at least, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I always placed this movement in around 1960 uh-huh. as sort of when postmodernism and the critical theories and the Frankfurt School, like when those sort of ideas started really taking over the academy. But history was one of the disciplines that really went south. Uh, according to Granite Stein, um, he would say that it had to do with multiculturalism, um, more than just multiculturalism. But where where the, where the aspect of where that aspect comes in is if we have all these different cultures, he, he would ask, which one are we teaching? 
And then the, the answer that you would kind of get back from the school system based on their policies, not based on anything anyone said, was that no history really got taught because it would make the immigrants feel bad. So instead of just teaching the Canadian history to everybody, they just kind of slowly have been phasing out history. And it, 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 it's they've subsumed it into social sciences. It's like a social history now. It's not political and mi- military history like it used to be. Right. It's just part of social studies. Let me crib here from your uh, essay that you woke that you wrote at WokeWatchCanada.com. Uh, uh, and you're quoting, I believe, from J.L. Granitstein here. Canada must be one of the few political entities to overlook its own cultural traditions, the European civilization on which our nation is founded, on the grounds that to do otherwise would systematically discriminate against those who come from other cultures. So as you say, we're pandering to other every other culture, uh, but we're not teaching the actual history of uh, uh, of this country. Uh, and you, you go on to say, or I guess in sort of um, summarizing Granitstein's work, it's not about, you know, history is no longer about source documents and and uh, the speeches that were delivered by various historical figures. It's it, now it's about emotion. And uh, what you call self-deprecating morality. Yeah, this has been something that's been going on for a long time. And it's funny. I just sent a, a message to Eric Kaufman, the, the professor. You've 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 uh, interviewed him. Yes. And I asked him this question about when he thought that that first began this whole self-deprecating morality, injecting moralism into uh, historiography and just in the way you conceive of your own nation. And this has been going on gone, uh, at least since the turn of the century. What, what historians call the fin de siècle, the, 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 the change from the 1800s to the 1900s, yes. was a major shakeup in just culture all over the world. And that's when we sort of got, started getting this idea where people who were powerful, powerful, like empires, need to feel bad about it, especially when it comes to their dealings with the less powerful. Right, right. Um and instead of, again, teaching um, actual history, now it's about sexism and racism. That's history. It's the history of sexism and racism. That's the be all and the end all of history now. Yeah, it's it's like a social sciences or a social history. Like I even talk about in the article, uh, I gave a little anecdote of my own son's. Well, it's not a history class at all. It's a it's called social studies. And they are learning about the Holocaust, but it's the it's the oddest way they're learning about it. It's not about the actual core events that made Nazi Germany uh, such a terrible uh, period in time and the persecution of the Jews. They're talking about the MS St. Louis, the boat that arrived in Canada where the Canadians turned away the Jewish refugees. Ah, right. Which, and that that is an important thing. To talk. Yeah. Yeah. That is an important thing to talk about. But that's not what you talk about first. When you're first in- introducing the Holocaust to kids, you talk about the the basics of it. And then later on, you get into more nuanced elements. Right. Um, and just for um, for people not aware of the uh, MS St. Louis, this was the passenger ship. It was carrying about a thousand Jewish refugees fleeing the Nazis. They were refused entry into Canada um, just before the Second World War, I believe. And there's a famous quote from, I believe it was a liberal at the time. I can't remember uh, the name, but he said, none is too many or one is too many. Um, as you say, that that's an important historical uh, footnote. But you're saying that that has become the focus of this so-called history lesson on the Holocaust is look at how bad Canada was back then, rather than 
let's talk about the proper context here. The fact that Hitler killed six million Jews. Absolutely, Richard. It, it was not clear that my son walked away from those lessons that that Hitler was the bigger villain. He I, I, it wasn't wasn't clear in his mind if, it, if Canada was the bigger villain or Hitler was the bigger villain. Interesting. Interesting. You know, here we are in Black History Month and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fine with uh, talking about the, the contributions of, um, you know, black Canadians. And, you know, they certainly made valuable contributions. But it seems, again, as if Black History Month is not about celebrating how far we've come. You know, uh, slavery was ended by the British Empire in the 18th century. Um, uh, you know, uh, Blacks have made incredible inroads in terms of, uh, uh, you know, careers. They used to be forbidden from, you know, using drinking fountains. And we all know the, you know, the the battles of the civil rights movement, not only in the United States and Canada. It seems that rather than celebrating how far we've come, uh, it's still just you know, mired in how horrible we were. Yeah, uh, that's exactly it. I mean, w- one of the early books I brought on the ecophobia that that is what this is. It's when, if you remember that that, that the topic of that book, it was just about countries and empires and peoples that become very prosperous and developed. At the height of their prosperity, they become riddled with guilt and feeling like they don't deserve it, like they they only have their success because they must have oppressed someone else to get it. This is a natural human thing, but we have to get over it as a people and celebrate, you know, our illustrious histories as well as recognize like the dark aspects too. Who Killed Canadian History it was a national bestseller and uh, by J.L. Granitstein. And you can also read uh, James Pugh's essay uh, on this. It's called History Ain't Dead. It just smells funny. The 25th anniversary of Who Killed Canadian History. That's at Woke Watch. Canada.com. James, great job. Thank you. And we'll uh, talk again next week. Right on. Thanks, Richard. All right. When we come back, Dr. Carol Lieberman, she's America's psychiatrist and uh, she's here. She was um, the first forensic psychiatrist to declare on national media that Biden had encroaching dementia. She'll be here to talk about that. Cheryl Chumley from The Washington Times will be here talking about America's borders, swarming with leeches, criminals, moochers, and parasites. And uh, we'll uh, end things, round things out. The Morning Guy, Mark Petroni, will be here, host of the Mark Petroni Morning Show. And uh, that'll be an exceptional second hour, if I do say so myself. Stay tuned for that. Back with more right here on The Richard Serrett Show. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption. This is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. We're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. Yeah.
Welcome to Hour 2 of the Richard Serrett Show. If you missed Hour 1, you missed a lot. But uh, just relax, chill, it's okay. There's still lots of great programming coming your way this hour, including our very own Mark Petrone, host of the Mark Petrone Morning Show, heard weekdays 7 to 9, here on Saga 960. Cheryl Chumley will be here, online opinion editor and host of the Bold and Blunt podcast for the Washington Times. And uh, quite an incendiary headline here that she's written for her column, America's Borders Swarm with Leeches, Criminals, Moochers, and Parasites. Let me just crib here from the, uh, the lead paragraph just to give you a sense where she's going. A Venezuelan migrant, Lionel Moreno, who is a social media influencer with about 300,000 followers on TikTok and who earns his living by begging for money from strangers, has called on his base to cough up money to pay for the legal expenses of a fellow Venezuelan migrant, a 15-year-old named Jesus Alejandro Rivas Figueroa, who was arrested on charges of shooting a woman in Times Square. All right, we'll get to that with uh, Cheryl Chumley. Uh, But first, you know, a former White House physician who cared for three presidents, uh, he's a Texas Republican representative, Ronnie Jackson, who's saying that the, uh, you know, he's taken note, obviously, as many Americans have, that the decline, the cognitive decline and physical decline of Joe Biden is happening very quickly. He says, I've taken care of three presidents. I know firsthand what it takes to be the commander in chief and the head of state. It's a grueling job, both mentally and physically. This man can't do the job. He's proven to us every single day that he can't do the job, but this is going to get worse. Again, this is Ronnie Jackson, who served as a physician under the Bush, Obama and Trump administrations. Now, you may be interested to know that the very first uh, forensic psychiatrist to declare on national media that Biden had encroaching dementia was our next guest, a good friend of the program, Dr. Carol Lieberman, world known and known worldwide as America's psychiatrist, the host of Dr. Carol's Couch on voiceamerica.com and the terrorist therapist podcast. Welcome back, Dr. Carol. How are you? Thank you. Fine. Thank you. Uh, can you give us uh, w- w- when when did you uh, declare that Joe Biden had encroaching dementia? Do you remember the, the time and the place? Well, it was when he was running for president the first time. It was in 2020 when he was in his basement. And um, the reason why I was uh, saying all of that, I mean, first of all, I was warning, trying to warn America not to vote for him. Um, but. It was because I, you know, as a forensic psychiatrist, uh, a a lot of cases that I have done have to do with competency. So I know the signs to look for. And um, and he was already back then in his basement, which is why they were keeping him in his basement. um, He was already beginning to show signs of dementia. And I called it encroaching, you know, because it was it was gradually moving, getting worse and worse. And now we have seen. Uh, everybody can see you don't have to be a psychiatrist. All right. Now, um, do you remember the news outlet that you? Oh, it was a whole bunch of them. I remember yeah. one of them was Joe Piscopo. Um, you know, it was probably the usual, the usual suspects, you know, Newsmax or Fox right. or I, I don't remember. I did a bunch of them. I mean, I was trying to do as much as yeah. I could for more people. Now, we always hear from uh, the left primarily, well, you can't diagnose dementia uh, unless you do a, you know, a, a proper in-person examination. As a forensic psychiatrist, is that 
Is that wrong to say? Or, I mean, can you diagnose someone with dementia? Well, I mean, in a perfect world, I mean, I have never met Joe Biden. I did in 2022 write an open letter where I invited him to uh, take a cognitive test with me, but I have never been in person with him. All of my, you know, where I was getting that from in 2020 was from observing him, you know, in the media like we all were. But things that people were calling gaffes, you know, they were just trying to say, say, oh, this is just Joe and it's not really serious and blah, blah, blah. I saw so many things. For example, then he was having memory problems. Of course, those have gotten a lot worse. He was having some confabulation, which is when you don't know the answer or you can't remember the answer, you make something up. Um, Nowadays, he's having more word salad. You know, that's gotten worse where he's just throwing words together. But even back then, Uh, He had another symptom, which was volatile emotions. You know, I'm sure you probably remember that he at um, one or more campaign stops, if somebody would ask him a question and he didn't like, you know, he didn't know the answer. He didn't like the question. He didn't like the attitude, whatever. He would get very emotional. You would get angry, which of course you're not supposed to do in a campaign stop. And then uh, he was also, you know, now we see more his disorientation. He can't, uh, once he stops reading the teleprompter, he doesn't know where he is. I mean, that's been happening now for a while. And um, and the worst problem that he has um, that you can't always see, but it's been there for a while. It's been there at least since Afghanistan with a horrible um, surrender in Afghanistan. And that is abstract thinking where... Um, you, you know, that's something that te- chess players have um, a lot of. They can see what is going to happen many moves ahead. If I do this and the other person does this, you know, you, you can strategize. And he has no clue about he can't put, you know, all these parts of his brain together to strategize. And so all of these things have just gotten worse and worse. And um, and of course, it's so ironic that um He didn't have it diagnosed. You know, he still has refused to take any kind of competency test or any kind of cognitive test. Mm -hmm. Um, But because he was being examined uh, by Robert Herr as a special prosecutor regarding his classified document question, it's Robert Herr who actually uh, got to diagnose him, so to speak. I mean, he isn't a doctor, but he got to say that he shouldn't face uh, charges for his what he did with the classified documents, even though really, you know, he did bad things. He should have been facing charges, but he said he wasn't really competent to stay to to um, uh, stand for charges to go to trial. He called him a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory, and so he would get sympathy from the jury, and he probably wouldn't be found guilty. So if he can't be, if he's not competent to stand trial, then he certainly isn't competent to be our president. Right. Apparently, he couldn't remember the the date of his son's death. Yes. Uh, he couldn't remember the the exact years he was vice president. Um, obviously, he had no recollection of you know when certain classified documents were you know were stored and where and and so forth. Um, what about the shuffling? Uh, he, he shuffles a lot when he and, and this is why I think he's so he seems to be so prone to tripping and falling and stumbling up the stairs because he shuffles. I've been told sort of anecdotally. I'm no expert, obviously, but that's that can be a sign of dementia. Is that true? Yes, um, it could be. Yes, that's one of the things also. I mean, it could also be a sign of Parkinson's, but 
Um, but the way his brain is working seems more to be the dementia, and the way it's progressed is more like dementia. But, you know, he needs, I mean, I'm not saying that he should just listen to me. <laughs> and, well, I think he, I would appreciate it if he would listen to me and, and retire. But um, what he really needs, what he has needed since 2020 at least, is um, an examination, not only a competency test, these cognitive tests, but also with a neurologist. You know, PET scans, CAT scans, um, blood tests, all kinds of, you know, medical tests to um, try to determine what is going on. Because you can't cure dementia, but you can slow the progression of it. And that's certainly what he should have been doing. Well, well, based on where he is at right now in February of 2024, and you've seen the the decline we all have since, um, let's say, <clears throat> September, October of, of 2020 during the campaign. Uh, what, how, where is this going with his dementia? How quickly left untreated do you see him declining? I mean, what is he going to be like in another six months? Well, you know, I have big questions about whether he's going to make it to election day. I mean, we, he seems to be deteriorating in front of our eyes, even like compared to a month ago, um, the deterioration seems to be getting faster but um, so I, I wonder, you know, if he's going to make it to November because um, I mean, you know, because now uh, it, it's I mean, it's one of the things that's really bad is that um, some Democrats, not all, but some Democrats are still trying to say that he's fine, um, and, which which, of course, lowers the public's um, trust in Democrat, those Dem- or in anybody who is saying that he is fine. But, um, but, you know, I think that either physically, something's going to happen physically, you know, he's very, um, he had when he was younger, uh, in his 40s, he had a brain bleed, and he had aneurysms. And he is currently, um, and has been taking medication for atrial fibrillation, you know, and, and arrhythmia, cardiac arrhythmia. So we know about these things, you know, we've know the, known about these things for quite a while. And, um, and so, you know, so, so any, at any time, actually people with, um, this kind of cardiac arrhythmia, they are prone to having strokes. I mean, he could have a stroke tomorrow. Um, and, and so I really, you know, it's getting more and more doubtful in my mind that he's going to make it to the November election. Dr. Carol Lieberman, America's psychiatrist. We'll uh, take a quick time out back to more of our conversation in three minutes. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. America's psychiatrist, Dr. Carol Lieberman is here. You can follow her on X at Dr. Carol with an E-M-D. At Dr. Carol with an E-M-D. And the website, drcarol.com. Again, D-R-C-A-R-O-L-E dot com. We're talking about President Joe Biden's encroaching. Well, it's not encroaching dementia. It's here. It's in full, full bloom, if you will. That's not a very good analogy, but it's uh, it's he's obviously in a rapid uh, cognitive decline, physical decline. Um, let's say he makes it. Well, we're in the midst of uh, the, the election really now with with primaries and so forth. But once the primaries wrap up, there's going to be scheduled debates uh, in your estimation. It, is there any way he could actually manage to to uh, to stand at a podium for an hour and debate Donald Trump? 
Oh, that, that would be interesting. I hope he does make it to the debates because that would certainly be interesting. I mean, he barely made it the last time around. So, um, and, you know, there is word that they're feeding him things like um, Adderall or, you know, things that uh, uh, to sort of help his cognition during the debate, you know, or, and even during speaking now um, with the teleprompter and so on, that he's had a little help, medical help. But um, but that's not foolproof. I mean, it wasn't foolproof before when he was doing these debates. Um, he was failing miserably. But, you know, it, it's it's to, the thing that's really disturbing. I mean, besides, of course, having a president who is not all there um, and being ruled by Obama, you know, who's the puppeteer of all of this. Um, but what's really also disturbing is that so many Americans are pretending it's like the emperor has no clothes. You know, nobody is saying that the, not, I will say nobody. Yes, there are people saying it, but, but there are still some people who are, are not saying it that, you know, acknowledging that the emperor has no clothes. They're just letting him parade around and pretending that he is making sense. Do you think that this qualifies as uh, elder abuse? I mean, on his, his, his wife, Jill, he's got family. They could basically pull him aside and say, Dad, we're not doing this anymore. Or, Joe, it's time to, you know, it's time to hang him up. They, they keep trotting him out there, pushing him out there. Is this elder abuse in your, in your mind? Yes. I mean, especially with Jill. You know, when you think about that, um, how, how obviously she loves being first lady, and she puts that above the health and well-being and even, um, you know, the the uh, dignity of her husband. Instead and the security of, of the country and the security uh, of the country. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, and she's just smiling and wearing different outfits. And I mean, it's it's it's, you know, a wife who loved her husband um, would not do that kind of thing. There's a lot of talk now. Um, in fact, there have been a number of I think there's something like 25 Republican congressmen and women uh, who have signed a letter um, asking for a cognitive test. And also they're talking about the, invoking the 25th Amendment, which would be to remove the president from office on the basis of uh, him being incapacitated. And I don't know uh, the, the, the ins and outs of the 25th amendment, what it actually uh, requires. Some of, I've heard some people say, well, the president himself would have to agree. Uh, but, but I don't know if you can enlighten us about the 25th amendment and, and uh, given his current state, uh, you know, how likely do you think that is that, that they will, Maybe even the Democrats realizing he's, you know, he's not going to be able to debate, invoke the 25th Amendment. How likely? Well, I actually have been calling for the 25th Amendment for quite a while. Um, but it's certainly now I think the the um, something that pushes it over the top is the fact that he was basically found not competent to stand trial. Uh, you know, so it, and and no, um, Robert Hur is not a psychiatrist, but. Um, but he gave him a very thorough exam. I mean, uh, interview. And um, I, I think I think people the reality is that people have to acknowledge this. That in the 25th Amendment, it's whether the pe- president is fit for office, whether he can carry out the duties of his job. And um, I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that he can't. Um, but, you know, whenever anybody talks about 
whether it was me or anybody else, talks about the 25th Amendment or talks about impeachment. You know, that's also been sort of brought up, uh, especially recently. But then the thing is, okay, then if that happens, then we have Kamala. And Kamala is such a nightmare. It's like nobody wants that. It's almost we almost would prefer to pretend that Biden has it all together than to actually have Kamala. Kamala is, you know, she's giggling all the time because she still can't believe that she's vice president. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she needs a cognitive test. Yes, right. How would you compare, um, uh, not necessarily compare, but how would you evaluate former President Donald Trump's cognitive ability uh, at the age of 76. Well, you know, it really annoys me when people start trying to say, uh, well, first of all, when people talk about age as a determinant of whether somebody is competent or not. I mean, yes, of course, as we get older, there are more likely to be physical things wrong with us and, and so on, but that can affect our cognition. But it's not about age per se. Um, you know, it's, and, and as far as Trump, um, yes, Trump is 77 and Biden is 81. So it's not a big difference in years, but it's an incredible difference in um, the brain power. I mean, when you think about Trump, like he just made the uh, I saw his speech at CPAC the other day over the weekend. Yes. And, um, you know, it was it was brilliant. At the beginning, it was a little dull because he was reading the teleprompter. But once he got off the teleprompter and was telling stories and and he uh, I, I, I don't know if you saw. Did you see it, too? A little bit of it. Yes. Yes. And, and he told this story about when he was um, in Air Force One and they were landing in Iraq and there were no lights. And and he was very self-deprecating, which is kind of rare. He does that. But he was he was just charming. And he, he had and and he was trying to say, you know, I know you're wondering, said something like I'm paraphrasing. Uh, I know you're wondering whether I'm going to get back to the original story. He went like two or three different stories, started different stories, and he got back to all of them. And, um, and when you think about the fact that he is, you know, being besieged on all sides with all different with lawfare, with all different kinds of cases and so on, threatening to put him in jail, all the things that's going on with that. Um, and he is still able to run a campaign and to talk, give these speeches like this. And the reason why he's able to is because of his love for America. You know, um, that's what gives him the energy to be able to to do all of this, even though, you know, if he really sat and thought about it, he could cry um, at all the how he's being besieged. But he goes above that. And so, no, there's no comparison uh, cognitive wise with Biden. Dr. Carol Lieberman, America's psychiatrist, the host of Dr. Carol's Couch on VoiceAmerica.com, the terrorist therapist podcast as well. She's a forensic psychiatrist, expert witness, best-selling author, uh, winning author of four books, two on terrorism and two on relationships. Her five times award winner, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, and How to Protect Your chi- uh, Child in a Time of Terror, Helping Kids and Their Parents and Teachers Cope with World Events. And again, you can uh, follow her on X at Dr. Carol M.D. Carol, thank you so much, as always. You're very welcome. My pleasure. All right. When we come back, Cheryl Chumley talking about America's borders being swarmed with leeches, criminals, moochers, and parasites. Oh, my. Back with that conversation in three minutes. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 a.m., All right. Welcome back. By some estimates, nearly 10 million illegals have crossed the southern border into the United States since Beijing Joe Biden became president. 
More conservative estimates place that number around 7.3 million illegal migrants. Um, who are these people coming into the country? Well, according to Cheryl Chumley, online opinion editor, commentary writer, and host of the Bold and Blunt podcast for the Washington Times, the a southern border is being swarmed by leeches, criminals, moochers, and parasites. Oh, my. Cheryl, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about Venezuelan migrant Lionel Moreno. Who is this character? So he is a 15 year old or he's a actually he's a social media influencer who is calling on his followers. And there are something like 300,000 of them to cough up some money to help pay for legal expenses and other things for a 15 year old fellow Venezuelan migrant who was just arrested and charged with murder for a uh, Times Square, New York City shooting of a woman in the leg. And apparently uh, police say he fired at officers as well as he fled the scene. So um, this 15 year old uh, who shoots a woman um, then is, is fleeing, shoots at police, doesn't thankfully doesn't hit anyone. He's in jail. He's 15 underage. But this Leonel Moreno is asking Americans to pay for his legal bills. Is that it? Yeah, he wants to raise money to pay for his legal bills, basically so this 15-year-old can have a chance in life and be reunited with his mother. And, uh, you know, this is a guy, this uh, this Marino, this social media influencer, it's, it's on TikTok that he he has so many followers. This is a guy who has made videos bragging about how he's come to America to just live off the system, uh, beg in the streets to provide for his family and exploit America's entitlement uh, programs so that he can basically live for free and vacation in America. His word, vacation. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and uh, where is he located uh, in the United States? Do we know? Ohio. Uh, he, he is in Ohio right now. Yes. So he's making a living off of um, being Us. a TikTok influencer, plus, I guess, social programs. Is he uh, receiving a, a monthly stipend from the government as well? I'm not sure what entitlements he specifically receives. I, I was reading through um, stories that had reported on this particular matter. And uh, one of the reports I was reading, I think that one was in the New York Post, said that he lives off of uh, off of taxpayer taxpayer entitlements. And if you look at his TikTok videos, he actually brags about it. So I don't know how much money he is taking from taxpayers uh, to live in America. But look, it's just indicative of our system under the Democrats in the White House that this is going on. How many Lionel Morenos do you think are out there in the United States? Well, there certainly aren't uh, that many Morenos who are on social media calling for, um, you know, money to be raised for murder suspects. But there there is a large grouping of of American migrants who are basically doing the same thing. He is living off the system, coming to America, um, having babies in America. So their children are automatic, uh, automatically deemed American citizens and just using tax dollars, however they they can to squeeze free rides out of American workers. So what's happening in New York now with uh, Mayor Eric Adams? He hired this company to distribute sort of prepaid either debit cards or or, or credit cards that are that have something like what $10,000 on them and they were just handing them out 
to uh, illegal migrants that are, you know, uh, squatting all over the city. Um, what's happening with that? Is that has that gone through? Has that been approved? I don't think it's been approved yet. There has been a lot of backlash uh, against it. Similarly, in Chicago, where they were handing out or trying to hand out uh, tax dollars to illegals in their city as well. It just seems the latest um, push in a Democrat agenda to bring as many illegals as they can into this country before Joe Biden gets booted from the White House in the next election. Because, they you know, once you have so many illegals here, it tips the balance of culture and politics so that it will be very, very difficult for Republicans to win in any races in the future. Right. As uh, someone was pointing out that um, even if they're not able to vote, and many of them apparently do vote <laughs> illegally, but even if they don't vote, it doesn't matter because when you have that number of people coming in and let's say, you know, a lot of them settle in California, 10 million people, that's that's more than the greater population than in something like 35 states. But just when they settle in a country, they're included in the census. So that state, let's say it's a blue state, they're going to be allotted um, more um, electoral college votes because as their population grows. So even if they don't vote, they can swing the election that way. Yes, that is the long term double whammy strategy of the Democrats, right? If we can't get them in their minds, if we can't get them legal and uh, get them voter it, voting uh, for the next election, at the very least, every 10 years by the Constitution, there is a census in this country. And when you flood certain states, and it's always the Democrat-controlled states, right, because that's where the entitlement dollars, dollars flow, if you flood those states with more and more illegals and migrants who tend to depend on the system uh, for their living expenses, then you do create this sort of model where it, the, the system will be overrun with Democrat voters in the future. Cheryl Chumley is the online opinion editor, commentary writer, and host of the Bold and Blunt podcast for The Washington Times. A quick timeout back with more of our conversation. The Richard Serrett Show continues after this right here on Saga 960. Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Before I get back to my conversation with Cheryl Chumley from The Washington Times, you know, we don't always have the opportunity to choose the people we work with that share our values. But when we can, we should. So stop working, stop working with woke banks and big financial institutions that don't share any of your values. Instead, give our friends at Rocklink a call. Rocklink Investment Partners, proudly Canadian, proudly conservative. They offer a genuinely unique investment approach to the, in, in the crowded money in management space. They love working with like-minded folks like you that share their passion for ending the, the liberal and woke insanity that's destroying our country. So give Rocklink a call today. Don't delay and tell them your buddy Richard sent you. 905. 905- 631 5462 I called and now I'm a client. You can also email Rocklink at info at rocklink.com. That's info at rocklink.com. Rocklink with a C. R-O-C-K-L-I-N-C. Cheryl Chumley stays with us, online opinion editor, commentary writer, host of the Bold and Blunt podcast for the Washington Times. We're talking about her latest column, America's Borders Swarm with Leeches, Criminals, Moochers, 
and parasites. Um, Cheryl, back in 1988, some say that uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, defeated uh, the Democrat nominee, Michael Dukakis, with that Willie Horton um, TV campaign. Willie Horton was this violent criminal. He was a convicted murderer. He was out on a furlough from prison. Uh, while he was out on furlough, he committed more violent crimes. And uh, this, to me, um, kind of echoes what we're seeing with we have this violent, illegal immigrant, uh, Joan, uh, Johan Boeda or Boda, uh, who beat two New York City cops within an inch of their life. And uh, he gets released uh, uh, from after being arrested. And, and then he flips the bird to the cameras as he's leaving the jail. Um, I don't know if the Republicans are planning on making hay out of that particular scene. It should be in a Trump campaign ad if it's not already. I think the Trump campaign should pick every week uh, a new incidence of illegal on American citizen crime and just run with it. And, and in that way, they would be almost guaranteed an easy win of the 2024 election. And look, Americans are sick and tired of having illegals uh, drunkenly drive down the roads and crash into people, murder people, knife people, rape people, and then run off down to the border or worse, run off to some liberal leaning church and receive shelter there and not face any consequences. And then even so boldly and brashly do things like you just uh, noted, flip off for the surveillance cameras because they know not, nothing's going to happen to them. This is the key election issue going forward. And Donald Trump's uh, team needs to make more of a deal out of what's taking place with the illegals insofar as crime on citizens in this country. Um, the, would you say it is fair to say that uh, illegal immigration has become, uh, bar none, the number one uh, election issue for 2024? Number one, number one issue, without a doubt. The economy is bad enough. The foreign policy is a mess because there is no foreign policy under this White House administration. So either of those issues would be substantial enough to campaign upon if you're a Republican. But the border is the number one issue. And Americans of all political stripes are feeling the devastations from this open border situation that this Democrat uh, White House has so created. If it's not crime in communities, it's giveaways of tax dollars, massive giveaways, not just a little uh, $20 Panera or Starbucks card, tens of thousands of dollars of free tax dollars given away, as well as hotel rooms and food and medical care. So yes, number one issue, border control. Um, are we likely to see any uh, surprises come election day. Well, there can be plenty of surprises leading up to election day. We don't I don't think we can say with certainty that Joe Biden is going to be the nominee. But um, all everything else being equal, um, do you think that this illegal immigration issue, because as people are now are very fond of saying, every state now is a border state. I mean, New York state is just the city is just overrun with illegals in New York City. Are we likely to see any surprise flips as a result of this. I, I don't think, you know, California necessarily or New York State, maybe they'll be much closer than we might anticipate. But any any surprise flips as a result of illegal immigration? 
You know, my common sense and my optimism for America would say yes to that. But it just seems at this point in time that we have been so flooded by illegals and migrants that there just seems to be a lot more Democrat voters out there that we don't know about. And I know that there are some communities that let illegals actually vote in local elections. I believe there is a state or two that allows them to vote in state elections, but so far they're not allowed to vote in the federal elections. Still, I see a lot of Democrats out there who are completely blind to the fact that the border issue is directly tied to the crime that's taking place in their community, or a lot of Democrat voters out there who live in a bubble, so they are sheltered from much much of what's taking place around the rest of the nation. So I don't know if there's going to be any surprises, but my common sense and optimism would love to say yes on that. Cheryl, how do we uh, subscribe and listen to the Bold and Blunt podcast? Oh, thank you. Go to WashingtonTimes.com and subscribe to it there, or you can get it anywhere podcasts are available. Cheryl, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheryl Chumley, online opinion editor, commentary writer, host of the Bold and Blunt podcast for the Washington Times. When we come back, the morning guy, Mark Petroni. Stay with us. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right. Welcome back. Well, the liberals have gone and done it. They have tabled the Online Harms Act, Bill C-63, tabled today in the House of Commons by the liberal minister of injustice, Arif Farani. Oops, I may just be in violation of the uh, the new Online Harms Act right there. We're online, and I just said something nasty about an individual. That could land me in prison. The um, amendments to the criminal code include the introduction of a standalone hate crime offense applicable across all criminal offenses with penalties extending up to life imprisonment. Maximum punishments for existing hate propaganda offenses are also said to be increased substantially. There'll be fines. Um, the, uh, the maximum punishment for the four hate propaganda offenses from five years to life imprisonment for advocating genocide uh, and from two to five years for others when persecuted by way of indictment. Well, I think we can all get behind, you know, advocating genocide. <laughs> um, also, the bill would add a definition of hatred based on the past decision of the Supreme Court of Canada. That's where it gets a little murky. Mark Petroni is the host of the Mark Petroni Morning Show. Heard weekday mornings here on Saga 7 to 9 a.m. Mark, hello. Welcome. Richard, thank you so much for inviting me on your show once again. It's always great chatting with you every week. An absolute blast. And this is a hell of a topic. Once again, the government going after speech. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think we can all get behind the idea if you're advocating for genocide. Uh, but I think there are, don't we already have laws for that? Yes. Um, and then they're talking about some pretty hefty fines. They, well, for, here's the, the disturbing part. They're, they're putting this tribunal together, like a star chamber, a secret star chamber. <laughs> and, and they have the power to order payments of up to $20,000 for victims of so-called online hate, as well as an order to pay the government 50000 if the member panel considers it appropriate. So up to $70,000 in fine. You're going to be basically... Uh, in uh, convicted in absentia by a, a star chamber in order to pay $70,000 because you said something that offended somebody. That's my take. What do you think? What do you think? Yeah, it's like uh, the human rights tribunals that, that went after Mark Stein. 
and, and others, uh, Ezra Levant, I think, those types of people. Um, yeah, you know, the hate provision in the criminal code is already covering the stuff with the genocide. You're not allowed to incite hatred. You're not allowed to call for the eradication of any identifiable group. I mean, that's been around for decades. But here now where they're going after, quote unquote, propaganda, and they're going to decide what constitutes propaganda. And that's where I think ultimately they're going to try and attack people who are essentially their critics. I mean, I'm just looking at uh, part of the bill posted online. It says, define hatred for the purposes of the new offense and the hate propaganda offenses. As Andy Lee notes, what is hate propaganda? Well, I think it's anybody who broadcasts something that the government doesn't doesn't like, Richard. I think if you say something that uh, attacks the government, they they can say, well, here is this person using their platform to put out uh, propaganda, and we hate it, and so, you know, we're going after you. See, this is my thing about this. You're right. You know, if you want to stick to the genocide aspect, you want to protect kids, that's how they're getting their foot in the door. But I think that this opens the door now to make alterations to the law going forward that will eventually attack speech for anybody who uh, the regime wants to go after. Right. I think Pierre Polyev was correct when he when he defined uh, or or summarized this bill as uh, hate speech is any speech that Justin Trudeau hates. And in the in the text of the bill, it defines content that foments hatred as any content that expresses detestation or vilification of an individual or group of individuals on the basis of a prohibited ground of discrimination. Well, I don't know. You'd have to, you know, weigh that against the Human Rights Act and try and figure out what they're on about. But, uh, you know, liberal uh, cabinet ministers are deserving of detestation and vilification. So, I mean, are they considered uh, an individual or group um, that could land you or me, uh, you know, in the Kingston Penitentiary? Why not? I don't think that that would be uh, something they would stop at. I mean, I think that they're after people who are harshly critical of Justin Trudeau because the more the Canadians hate him, well, the more he hates them and the more he wants to target those who, in his view, incite that hatred. I mean, this is a guy who also came out not that long ago and, and said that there was a conspiracy to undermine the mainstream media, which, of course, is very much in the pocket of the government these days. It's they're, they're wards of the state, most of them. And so here he is trying to protect that bunch as more and more uh, consumers of, of news leave the mainstream media and go elsewhere. And so he's, they, they've lost the narrative. They've lost the ability to use gatekeepers to restrict what news people see. And so when they hear people like you and I talk or people online, you know, the Ezra Levant's of the world or True North or any of these other uh, websites, news organizations, they want to put a stop to that. And maybe this is just one of the ways that they could do that. It's kind of ironic because, as you say, the legacy media now basically wards of the state, they're bought and paid for. And uh, there's a rather large daily newspaper in the city of Toronto, which shall remain nameless because they are just so loathsome. Uh, but they had a, um, a columnist 
uh, recently write a piece, um, you know, saying that Hamas is not ISIS, essentially singing the praises of Hamas and saying we should not refer to Hamas as a terrorist group. Um, and I don't know if, if the, uh, the, the, uh, the phrase from the river to the sea was included uh, in that column. But uh, basically, I mean, here, here's Trudeau giving money, bags and bags of money to this, um, uh, this newspaper. And they're the ones that are fomenting the hate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I guess to be sort of fair, the National Post, a columnist there came out and ripped uh, that particular newspaper, a new one, over that uh, article. I mean, you know, I guess we could say that if you're going to defend free speech, you know, you're going to you're going to have to defend it coming from loathsome individuals who would yeah. suggest that somehow Hamas is justifiable in doing what they were doing. So, um, you know, I, I would at this point defend what they're saying, although <laughs> Does that, for for instance, what they're saying in that column in in the uh, in that paper, you know, does that violate some kind of provision in this new law? I mean, could you make the case that that might have uh, run afoul of this new uh, online hate bill? I don't know. Well, that's the problem when you when you uh, when you when you have a term when you have a, a laws governing hate speech it's a very very murky uh, area and depending on who's in power it can be determined it can be defined in many different ways and as polyev says hate speech in this case is simply speech that justin trudeau hates what's coming up on the morning show tomorrow morning mark well we've got uh, jerry ritz on the show he's a former agriculture minister in the uh, the harper government uh, he's going to be talking about the government's push to get people to stop eating beef. Uh, we've got uh, David Menzies on the show. Menzoy. Wow. Yeah, Dave, well, Dave's going to be talking about, you know, what changed between uh, the time when he was arrested uh, for asking a question, posing a question to Christia Freeland and uh, posing a question to uh, the environment minister, Gilbo, you know, something obviously must have happened because not only did he not get arrested when he spoke with uh, Stephen Gilbo, he also got some answers, a response to it. So, so something must have happened, probably uh, resulting from the spanking that the liberals got internationally from arresting Menzies uh, in that previous incident. That's going to be tough for the liberals to start actually answering questions. So they'll be out of practice. <laughs> well, they have no choice to answer in the House of Commons, even though they, you know, they divert. But, uh, you, you know, let's let's put let's hold these people's feet to the fire as best we can, because you, Lord knows most of the medium, most of the media is not doing it. And you do that every weekday morning from seven to nine. The Mark Petroni morning show right here on Saga 960. Mark, thank you for dropping by. And uh, you and I will talk tomorrow morning. And I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Richard. All right, buddy. All right, that is it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, and Mike Carafolitis. I will be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. I'll speak with you at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's 
That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Tuesday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM.